It's Monday, November 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Yet again, add one more to the list. Billionaire and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has announced that he is also running for president. Bloomberg will have an uphill battle to the nomination, but will throw millions of dollars into his campaign and will not accept any donations. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this update and also a number of polls showing that independents are starting to sour on the impeachment inquiry. Next, every minute there are about 3.8 million queries typed into Google. And while the company says that it does not use any human curation to arrange results on a page, Google has interfered with search results to a far greater degree with algorithm tweaks, blacklists, and thousands of low-paid contractors to assess the quality of search results. There are a lot more factors that go into what information gets displayed when you use Google than you might think. Kirsten Grind, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how Google decides on what you see. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Mike Bloomberg started as a middle-class kid who had to work his way through college, then built a business from a single room to a global entity, creating tens of thousands of good-paying jobs along the way. Mike Bloomberg for president, jobs creator, leader, problem solver. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We have another late addition to the Democratic field of candidates running for president, Billionaire and former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg has officially announced that he's running for president. How tough a time is Michael Bloomberg going to have in this race now? It's going to be very hard for Michael Bloomberg, especially since he's already said he will not try to compete in the first four primary states. That will mean that as Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina and Nevada vote, he will not be on the ballot and he will not be campaigning in those states. However, he is going to be spending a lot of money focused on Super Tuesday states like California, like Alabama and Arkansas, Michigan. We understand he's already registered to be on the ballot in Texas. Um, So those big expensive states where a billionaire can spend millions of his own dollars campaigning is where he's (laughs) going to try to to make his play. Forbes has ranked Bloomberg as the 11th richest person in the world. This was her last year with a net worth of roughly $50 billion. And he's already vowed to spend $150 million on uh, uh, various pieces for the campaign, $100 million for Internet ads, between uh, $15 and $20 million for voter v- registration, and like about $30 million on television ads. But, Ginger, again, kind of the question from last week, what is Deval Patrick and Michael Bloomberg seeing, and, and in their circles, what are they seeing that – they feel compelled to get in? Do they not think that the Democratic field is strong enough right now? What we're seeing is potentially a huge disconnect between the world of Democratic donors and the world of Democratic voters. When we look at polls of Democratic voters, they say that most of them are pleased with the field. They think that there's a good nominee among the existing 17 people who were running for president still before Patrick and Bloomberg got into the race. Patrick and Bloomberg, however, are hearing from Democratic donors who get nervous this time every cycle. You know, they start to fret about whether or not the candidates are going to be good enough. Why isn't someone winning yet? Why isn't it over? This is pretty typical. And it's not unheard of for someone to get in late because of this. But that's what's really, I think, motivating them is sort of that hand wringing among the wealthy Democratic donors who are worried that no one has broken free and and made it a, a cakewalk yet. 
Joe Biden still, uh, according to national polls, is still kind of the front runner. But these latest entries just kind of make everything a little bit more confusing. Let's move on to impeachment. There's rounds of new polls coming out saying that the tables might be turning against Democrats. Independents specifically seem to be souring on the whole impeachment inquiry. So when we saw the initial set of polls come out regarding the impeachment, independents moved at a much larger uh, rate than other groups, particularly because Democrats and Republicans were already sort of dug in on the issue of impeachment and were much more open to it. So now we see that trending away a little bit. Most of them are not back to the levels we saw before the impeachment inquiry started. But it is a sign that this might not be something that independents are on board with. President Trump has sort of banked on the idea that politically, at the end of the day, impeachment would be good for him, that it would be a winner, that people would be sympathetic. Uh, He continues to call it a witch hunt. He continues to describe the whole thing as unfair. Uh, He thinks that argument is compelling to a lot of people, and he may end up being right. I would be surprised if an independent poll alone caused Nancy Pelosi to change her mind. But it's definitely going to be something that they're looking at as this process goes on. After two weeks of public hearings, they've gone this far. It just seems like they have to go through with a vote at some point. Uh, They got to get the articles of impeachment ready. They got to still have a little bit more in the process to go through. But I mean, it seems like they just have to go through with it. And then obviously in the Senate, the president uh, will get acquitted there. This is, as you might be suggesting there, that the House has passed the point of no return, that they've already gone through so much of this process, that they're up making the argument that the president should be impeached, that they would have a hard time not holding a vote. And it would be pretty embarrassing if they held the vote and then they couldn't get enough votes to impeach him. But you're right. It would go into the Senate. And look, Trump and we've heard from his son, Eric, think that that's a huge political winner for them in the Senate, that they can call whatever witnesses they want. Trump suggesting in tweets over the weekend that he would force Adam Schiff to testify, uh, to explain why he investigated him, which is kind of absurd when you think about it. It's like you would force the police who uh, did the investigation to testify to prove whether or not they should have been investigating you. But it is uh, what he wants. Um, And so we could see that play out in a Senate trial of which overwhelmingly the expectation is the president would not be removed from office uh, in that in that case. We had two weeks of testimony in the impeachment inquiry. It seemed like Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union, it seemed like his testimony was the most consequential. He basically threw everybody everybody under the bus and said, look, everybody knew what was going on with this, quote unquote, pressure campaign against Ukraine. Everybody from uh, Vice President Mike Pence, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo knew about it. And now there's some new documents that show that Rudy Giuliani was in contact with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talking about some of this stuff, talking about the ouster of Marie Ivanovich as well. That's right. And Sondland's testimony will probably go down in history as being some of the most consequential testimony we've heard before Congress. He was saying that this was no secret. This was um, sort of uh, well known and that he called it point blank a quid pro quo. Now, will that move any public opinion? It doesn't seem at this point, although I, I, it's still to be seen in its entirety. But really was this this consequential testimony. And then we also heard, as you mentioned before, from Marie Ivanovich and from Fiona Hill, who testified at the end of this series of hearings and really were described as strong and powerful voices in this process. Ton of stuff still to go through. They're hoping to get some of this impeachment stuff done before Christmas is, is what I'm hearing. That's the goal. The House Democrats would like to vote before Christmas. And then Senate Republicans are talking about holding a trial in January. So that would be in the new year. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me and have a great Thanksgiving. Google sort of likes to present this viewpoint that it's just a bunch of computer code delivering results. So we looked at specifically how they're making changes to the algorithms. And really, we found that they make a lot more changes than we expected, but also that they're doing that under immense pressure from governments around the world and from big advertisers and other big businesses. Joining us now is Kirsten Grind, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Kirsten. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about C work, but Google uses blacklists. They use algorithm tweaks. They use contractors to shape what we see every day. Kirsten, tell us a little bit about how this all works. Yeah, we spent really many months looking into this to figure out exactly how it works. And it was very challenging reporting. So we wanted to understand more about the human decisions behind the scenes that are going on because Google sort of likes to present this viewpoint that it's just a bunch of computer code delivering results. So we looked at specifically how they're making changes to the algorithms and what tools they use. And really, we found that they make a lot more changes than we expected, but also that they're doing that under immense pressure from governments around the world and from big advertisers and other big businesses and also from interest groups. There are some incredible numbers that come with this. Google made more than 3,200 changes to its algorithms in 2018. That was up for more than 2,400 in 2017 and about 500 in 2010. Obviously, that's a long time ago and things have gotten more complicated since then. But increasingly, it seems like they're tweaking things to modify what the search results are going to show. Give us some of the top takeaways. One of the main ones is that Google makes a lot of algorithmic changes to search results to favor big businesses over smaller ones. So that is definitely a big one. We found that they have made certain changes to the site that will favor big businesses like Amazon or Facebook, in part by updating them more frequently, but also behind the algorithms, they're making signal changes that make that happen. And a lot of the big issue there is that a lot of smaller websites and businesses aren't, of course, aware that they're doing it. No one does. So that puts them on a much uneven playing field there. So that was one of the big things that we found. Could it be in that situation that consumers are actually looking for something from these bigger, well-known names or a bigger website is something like on Amazon where they're more likely to find what they're looking for? Does that figure into it? Through the course of this investigation, one thing that became really clear to us is that most of the time, Google appears to really be trying to deliver the most relevant results. So they are making these decisions based on that for the most part, right? But the problem is they're not really disclosing these decisions and explaining why they're making them or how they're making them. So even if it is a good decision to benefit the user, it's not being explained well at all. So that angers one constituent that doesn't understand what's going on. Google engineers are regularly making behind the scenes adjustments for other information that's on the layer on top of the basic search results. So the page is not just search results. They have these other things called knowledge panels, which give you a little more information on whatever a specific search might be. And they have like featured news also. How does that work? 
So that is really the sleight of hand that Google is doing here. So if you were to sort of look at the Google results page now compared with, say, 10 or 15 years ago, it looks completely different because Google has now layered on top of it all these different features, which it considers separate product lines. And what's going on there is they are saying, listen, we will not touch these blue links that we deliver you in organic search results. But those links have now shrunk to just a small amount of the page. So what's going on there is they're able to change all these other features, even though they're not really touching what they originally said they wouldn't. So they have a lot more control than they did, say, a decade ago. Something that a lot of people were concerned with, Google was accused of this, Facebook, other big tech giants were accused of this, conservative bias or bias against lesser known voices, I guess, in political discourse and other areas as well. So Google has a couple of things that they do use. They have this autocomplete feature. So, you know, if you type in Donald Trump is, it'll give you suggestions to complete that. That was something that came up in your investigation. And also some of these blacklists to certain sites to remove or prevent others from surfacing certain types of results. So I know they were facing a lot of criticism regarding to this. What did you guys find out related to that? So we, of course, kept that right in our heads as we were going along this reporting. We tested a lot of terms, both in organic search and in autocomplete, and also interviewed more than 100 people. We did not find any outright evidence that they are biasing against conservatives. However, what we did find is back to this transparency issue, which is that when they are blacklisting certain terms from search, meaning that they won't show up, or from autocomplete, they're not explaining it well or even admitting that they're doing it. And so that has helped lead political groups of all kinds to think that they are being censored. It's the sort of lack of explanation that is the problem more than anything else. And then another big thing that we've kind of come to realize what's going on, uh, Facebook was a big example when headlines started coming about how they use contractors to either filter out bad content, things like that. Google does the same. They use a bunch of low-paid contractors to assess the quality of the algorithm. So they'll give them a bunch of sample searches, and then it's up to those contractors to decide, using their best judgment really, whether the search results were accurate or gave them the searches that they did want. These contractors, it took me a really long time to wrap my head around because on the one hand, Google was saying these 10,000 outside contractors, so they're just like normal people in their houses, they're judging these search results. So in effect, they're the only quote unquote unbiased third parties reviewing these algorithm changes and how results display. But on the other hand, Google has all these guidelines that it's giving them on how they should rate results and also kind of gives them real life updates on how they should rate them. So it just makes it very confusing as to how unbiased they really are in the process. And Google doesn't have any other outside parties looking at search results. So many things have changed now. Obviously, when Google started off, they were just kind of this simple website search engine designed to index what's on the internet. But now they're an advertising juggernaut. Their advertising revenue was $116.3 billion last year. That is a ton of money. So a lot of people will have to think that this has to influence what a lot of these search results are. Uh, The other thing is, obviously, since 2016, when the elections happened, a lot of people were accusing various parties of posting misinformation online. Google's also getting a ton of requests from governments, businesses, other people to modify results just to give them a shot, I guess, if you will. 
On the advertising piece, of course, you can pay, they call it paid search. When you're buying an ad on search, that's the first thing that's going to show up in results. But one of the things that we found that was just incredible to us is, you know, they make a big deal about how even if you're a paid advertiser, that won't affect your organic search results, right? They're different sides of the business. But we actually found that some big businesses do get help that other websites don't. So it's not quite as even as they claim it is. I wanted to go back a little bit to the use of contractors and the way they differentiate between either misinformation or things like that. And one of the examples that you gave in the article was how they classify things and a lot of hot button issues, things that might pop up from one day to the next. A viral story might kind of elicit a ton of different Google searches. And one of them was how do vaccines cause autism? And they use this kind of go or bad method to push things. So if it's something that's okay and approved, it'll go in the good pile. If it's bad, they'll push it out that way. This kind of goes into how they really determine exactly what you're going to see. That speaks to just how much pressure, again, they're under and also internally. Google employees, there's tens of thousands of them, are notorious for sort of speaking their mind. There's been a lot of stories about how they've pushed back against Google for various contracts. So in this case, they're pushing back against Google search results. That form is really just supposed to be, hey, when I type this, there was a bug. But instead, it's kind of turned into, hey, like, why are you treating this hot button issue this way when really it shouldn't be the case. But there's a lot of pressure coming at Google from all sides. What is the top takeaway from all of this? It does seem like Google could do a better job of disclosing how the search results are managed. But even in some of uh, what you guys found, you, you really didn't see any political bias one way or the other within search results. So what's the takeaway from this website that I mean, I just feel everybody in the U.S. uses kind of all over the place. There's other places like Bing and DuckDuckGo, but Google is the king on this thing. The big takeaway is really that this is not just some autonomous objective code that is delivering results when you type in a query and that behind the scenes every single day, Google executives and engineers are wrestling with all this pressure that they are under and sometimes making decisions because of that pressure. So I can tell you, I mean, I can't use Google the same way I used to after all this reporting. <laughs> in, in, in what way? Help us help us understand it in that way. You know the inner workings now. So what is it that has changed in your mind? I truly believed, I mean, of course, I know that people write algorithms, but I didn't really understand how much goes into deciding what the algorithm shows or even that the people writing it could be under any kind of pressure, right? I sort of just really believed it was computer driven. So now when I get a certain type of result, I sort of find myself thinking, oh my gosh, did some interest group complain against this? Is this why <laughs> right. I'm not getting this over something else? You know, <laughs> yeah, and then so. it's and then it's off to the keyword race. You know, let me put in a couple of different keywords and see if my search exactly. changes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or even an autocomplete now, you know, before when something didn't show up, I just didn't really think anything of it. And now I understand they have blacklists. They're actually trying to keep that stuff out of there. And I just knew none of that. I think most people don't. Kirsten Grind, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram.
Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. And tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.